Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we just give you the praise, the honor, and the glory in everything, Lord. And we thank you that we have the word of God. We thank you that your Holy Spirit lives within us. We thank you that we're able to be called your children. And we, we certainly are so thrilled about that, Lord, because there's, there's not enough people in this world that are. So, and it's our job, Lord, to pray for people and spread the word and, and give the word of God to those who don't have it. So uh, we thank you again, Lord, and we praise you and honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to start in Exodus 3, and we're going to look at the first um, three verses. So now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro. Sorry about that. Um, His father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So in verse 1, the mountain of God, the word God is Yahweh, which means I am, and the one who is self-existent one. And we're gonna, this is going to come out again a little later. But in verse 2, the angel of the Lord is Jehovah, I am. And this uh, name of God is usually combined with other names to, to, to call out uh, different uh, attributes of God, like Jehovah Nisi means the Lord is my banner. You know, and there's a lot of them that we all know throughout the Bible. So when the Lord, and verse 4, so when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. This is the call to Moses. This is what the preparation has been about. So, and he said, here I am. Um, And he repeats his name twice. That's kind of interesting. There isn't a lot in the Bible about where God repeats that. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But God calls plenty of people in the Bible, but I've only found eight times he calls to individuals by a name twice in a row. Only eight times. Uh, Abraham, Jacob, Samuel, Martha, Simon Peter, Jesus to his Father in heaven, when he, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As he's dying on the cross. And Saul, the expert um, who became Paul, the expert of the law who will turn and give the gospel uh, of Jesus to the, to the Gentiles. So God always chooses the right people. He makes no mistakes. And this is something for us to consider as, as people and think, you know, uh, how could God choose me? And we're going to look at some things that are going to really kind of lay it out and say, why not? Then he said, do not draw near this place. In verse 5, take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Well, you think about this. He's looking at a bush that's burning out. It's not being consumed. 
He's out there with sheep. He's probably by himself. And he's like curious, so he goes over and looks. But a voice comes out of this bush. It's like, whoa, you know? It's like the twilight zone. But it isn't. It's God's way of making it personal to Moses in the time where he is and where he's going. Uh, remember, wherever God meets us is holy ground. It doesn't matter where. Uh, I don't know if you guys knew a worship leader named Marty Getz. He's a Messianic Jew. Tremendous music. Um, he put the Psalms to music, and he just um, was a great uh, worship leader, and he used to visit different churches, and I remember him coming out at Maranatha on the platform and walking across and taking his shoes off because he felt it was holy ground where God was going to meet the people. So in verse 7, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the opposition of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows. So I've come down to deliver them out of the hands of Egyptians and bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Ammonites, the Parasites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a whole bunch of ites. This means that God is ready to start to act on the cries and the sorrows of the people. He's been seeing this and listening continuously, and this is no surprise. This just means that he's about to initiate uh, the path ahead for Moses and the nation of Israel. So in verse 9, we see, Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This is 400 years after they went into Egypt. It's not like a day, a month, or a year. But the time limit to God is he's outside of time. You know, time doesn't really exist. You know, we measure a day as a day and a year and, and multiply these things, and they roll up into years and multiple years. But God, you know, it doesn't work that way. So in verse 9, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I, also, I have also seen the oppression in which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. My people, these are God's people, his chosen people. These are still his chosen people today. And they're kind of in a bad place today. They don't have a temple where they can worship. They can't sacrifice. They can't do any of that. But the day is coming when they're going to do that again. When the Lord comes back, a lot of interesting things are going to happen. So now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. God tells Moses that now is the time for him to return to Egypt to lead the people out of bondage. It's a big job. A lot of people. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? It's a very humble statement for him to make. Perhaps the last 40 years of being a caretaker for Jethro's sheep taught him humility. 
You know, he just had to take care of these sheep. And sheep are tough, you know. They're like people. Want to go here, go there. Um, a shepherd really has uh, a job. He has to protect them against uh, predators and he has to care for the sheep. And if they're going astray, he goes after them. Just like the parable in the Bible says, uh, he has the 99, he goes after the one that's lost, you know. So he said, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. Mount Horab, most Bible scholars feel, is the same mountain called Mount Sinai. And this is where the law was given to Moses later on when they get out into the wilderness. And God gives them the Ten Commandments. So Moses, then Moses said to God, indeed, When I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God, what's your name? So I can introduce myself and introduce them to who you are. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am um, has sent sent you. And I am is Jehovah, the supreme God, the one who is the self-existent one. No, you know, past, present, future, it's all there. Eternity past, eternity future, God's always been there. Moreover, in verse 15, God said to Moses, thus shall, uh, you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, And the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. They would recognize those three names. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was passed down in in history to the people. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. In other words, this is... I'm here because of your cries and your prayers. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, um, the Hivites, the Jebusites, to a land flowing with milk and honey. In verse 18, then they, they will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, wants them to take them along because they're established with the people right now, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, and the king of Egypt is Pharaoh, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. This instruction is what Moses has to say to the king. And three days' journey will get them out of Egypt if he allows them to go. They'll be outside of Egypt. They'll be on the edge of um, the, the wilderness. And, in, and the Lord now says, everything that he's saying here in these verses will never change. They're exactly what happened. They don't change left to right. He doesn't change his mind in anything. But I'm sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst, 
and after that he will let you go. God is telling Moses that Pharaoh, he's not going to listen to you, not even if you try to force him into listening to you uh, or some other manner. He's not going to listen to you. So Moses is probably thinking, he's not going to listen to me. Why am I going? Um, So he's also saying he will do wonders. He's going to do signs and wonders, which Moses doesn't know it now, but this is going to change the mind. It takes a long time of Pharaoh to let the people go. The people of Egypt themselves really came to that conclusion probably after the fifth, um, you know, the fifth plague. Um, Verse 21, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So this is the very end. It's going to the very end, just before they leave for Egypt. And, you know, it happens right at the Passover time. They go out, and the people are, like, happy to get rid of them. Yeah, sure. Take all my diamonds and gold and whatever else they had, special cloth. So, you know, and we know what this is used for later on. It's used in the tabernacle. So God has a plan, always has the big picture. So Moses does not know it at this time that there will be ten plagues on Egypt. Ten. Ten unbelievable plagues. And the last one will be the death of the firstborn in every Egyptian household. This is not just newborns. It's the firstborn or the oldest male in the Egyptian family. So if the oldest one there is 72 years old and there's nobody else alive, it's going to be that man. You know, a lot of times in the past they thought it was just the the young, but it's the young and many of the old. So the people of Egypt will now be open to anything to get these Hebrews out of Egypt, including giving Molly riches. Yeah, hey, here it is. Hasta la vista. Bye-bye. Um. And these riches, like I said earlier, would be used for the tabernacle. The nation of Israel is saved by the act of the Passover where instructions are given to them to sacrifice a perfect lamb, take the blood and put it on the doorpost and cover it with the blood of the perfect lamb all over it. And when the angel of death sees that, he's going to pass by because he knows that that household is the Hebrews. So the Lord said this will be a memorial for all time. Today, even today, um, the nation of Israel uh, celebrates the Passover every year. And it has a a meaning and an intent. And they have suppers that you can go to. It's really interesting, Seder suppers. Uh, It's a good thing to go once and just see what it's like. But uh, it's it's in memorial of when the, the Passover happened and the nation of Israel <clears throat> was saved by the, um, the blood of a perfect lamb. Who does that sound like? Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? We are saved by the blood of the perfect lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's an awesome, it's an awesome favor God did for us. 
It's an awesome blessing that God has given to us. So in chapter 4, we're going to see that Moses isn't going, you know, easily. He has two objections. So verses 1 through 9, first objection. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A rod. This man was a shepherd. He knew what a rod was for. Moses is very familiar with the two instruments from being a shepherd. One is the staff and the other is the rod. And the rod was used to discipline the sheep, you know, poke them and get them back in line. The shepherds used the rod and staff for chastening, guiding, and ruling the chief, uh, the sheep. He can also use it for protecting the sheep from predators. You know, there's all sorts of animals out there that want to eat the sheep. Yeah, they like, they like lamb, you know. And he said, cast it on the ground in verse 3. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. I think that would freak me out. Throw it down and all of a sudden you're looking at some, like a viper of some kind, you know. And then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Really? You think I want to do that? Your knees are shaking, you know. Buzz wouldn't do that. Buzz is, he would reach down and grab that snake by the neck. Just pick it right up um, and take it by the tail. So he reached out his hand and caught it. And it became a rod in his hand again. So God worked it both ways. Uh, that, he, that they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. See how many times God repeats that because he's putting that into the people's head that they're going to hear it because they're going to recognize that and feel comfortable with that. So God is equipping, instructing, and preparing Moses with ways and signs he can amaze and get the attention of the Egyptians. And believe me, he's going to get their attentions with the ten plagues. So in verse 6, furthermore, the Lord said to him, Now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Wow. You you put it in here, it comes out here. It's like scary. And he said, put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom. And behold, it was restored like other flesh. Again, God shows, look what I can do. I can give it leprosy. I can take it away. There's nothing I can't do. Then it will be, if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter side. And we know that what's going to happen is they're going to take a lot of lessons to learn. They're pretty uh, hard-nosed people, or the Pharaoh is for that matter. And it shall be if they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land, the water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. It's kind of amazing. God is describing the plague where the river turns to blood. So going ahead, nothing will be different or changed from what God is announcing at the burning bush. He's steady, he's straight on it. God is consistent and perfect in everything he says and everything he does. Verse 10 and 11 is objection number two, which is Moses' lack of eloquence. 
That's an, that's an interesting word. Then Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Lord, I can't even, I don't speak very well. And some, <coughs> some Bible scholars think, excuse me, Some Bible scholars think that uh, he stuttered. Um, so God is describing the plague where the river turns to blood. And God is consistent and perfect. So Moses said to the Lord, oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent. Moses announces his first excuse as to why he's not the one to go to Pharaoh and confront him. He doesn't want the job wants to rebel. He doesn't want to go. And basically, I am not a polished speaker, God. You know, I don't speak. I speak at sheep. And they speak back. Bah, bah. You know, I don't know what to expect. So when I was young, there was classes called elocution classes. This is way back. I'm an old guy designed to improve a person's presentation when speaking before people. I don't know if any of you remember those classes, but typically these classes were set aside for the wealthy because they were expensive and they're the only ones that could afford them. They weren't for the available to the average person. But God could have taken Moses and changed his voice in a moment. Look what he did with his hand. But he didn't do it because he had a plan, and we're going to see what that is. So the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who do you think made your mouth, Moses? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with, with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. So God's statement is, since I am God, I created all, including the mute, the deaf, the blind, the seeing. I can accomplish anything I want. Uh, to any anyone I want. He can do it. He can do it in us. He's done it with miracles. He's done it with many things with people over the years. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So Moses is still sticking with it like, I don't want to go, like a stubborn kid, you know. My grandkids, go over and, go over and do that. I don't want to do it. Do it now. <laughs> God's statement is, since I am God, I created all, including the mute, the deaf, the blind, the seeing, and he can accomplish anything. In verse 13, but he said, oh, my Lord, please send by the hand of whomever else you may send. So Moses did not understand that God is God. Nothing is impossible for God. Nothing, including taking people who have difficulty speaking, walking, or other disabilities, and accomplishes objectives in them. This is something for all of us to think about. Say, you know, Lord, I'm lame a little bit. I can use you. Figure out a place to use you. You know, I'm in a wheelchair. Don't worry about it. I can take it, and I can use you. And I can show the great things that you will do for me. Or anything like that. Even speech. Even being um, unable to speak. You know, being deaf. Look at how God developed the sign language for people and the way that that works today. God's statement is, since I am God, I created everything. Um, 
Moses did not understand really what God was saying. So in verse 14 to 18, Aaron is going to come along. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well. And look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. So God already had the answer to Moses' objection. He already had him moving. It just didn't start out. It just didn't happen. He was on his way. He was somewhere in in between where he left and where Moses was. So already he had Aaron, a priest of the Levites, on his way to see Moses. And this could very well be the first time Moses has seen his brother in at least 40 years. Might have been longer than that. Remember, he was taken away as an infant. His brother was older than him. I don't know if he, the Bible doesn't say he had any interface with them during the, the 40 years he was a prince or 40 years he was in the desert. And by the way, Moses, this is God, Aaron will be happy to see you. God is now encouraging Moses, starting to build him up. You know, you can do it. You can make this work. I'm helping you out. So in verse 15, now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So God now gives Moses another instruction. The line of communication is set. We have that same line of communication with God. We go to God in prayer. Lord, we go to the word. Something talks to us through that with God. Always. And whenever we go to the Lord, we always get an answer. It might take a while. It might not come, but the answer is no. And um, so he's bringing Aaron in to help. So he shall be your spokesman to the people. And he himself shall be a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. So God's going to talk to Moses. Moses is going to talk to Aaron. This is the way we're going to do it. This is the game plan. They slap hands and they walk away. And you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs. And Moses was probably glad he had the rod because he knew what it could do. Yeah, I got the, the miracle ward. Uh, Problem solved. I have given you a spokesman as I tell you what to do, and you act for me in telling Aaron what to do. I'm taking care of this problem. Take the rod as you will use this in the manner that I'm asking you to use it. Now, you might say all of this was well for Moses because he's being given a huge call from God. It's going to be eventually a couple of million people to oversee, to be the boss, to lead them through. I don't know if you've ever supervised people. Supervising two people is hard enough, you know. Uh, supervising our children, our grandchildren sometimes is like, wow, two million people. So you might say all of this was well, and you're right. You know, it was, you know, Moses is having a large group of people. Simply to God, the call to each of us from him is not rated on a scale of difficulty. God doesn't rate it from a difficulty from zero to 100, 100 being like pulling your hair out and jumping off a bridge to zero, which would be nothing. Um, everything accomplished for the Lord is for his glory and not for ours. And that's the thing we've got to remember. It's God's glory. 
Everything that we do, no matter what it is, it belongs to him. We give it to him. When we start out, we say, Lord, this is it. This is it for you. Service to God is, is the same whether you're behind the scenes or out serving in full view of the body of Christ. If you're, you know, an usher, people see you when you come in, that's full view. If you clean in the church on Sunday or you're doing something else that isn't seen behind the scenes, all of that's great. And the Lord blesses that as well as anything else that happens in the church. Um, God has chosen, and this is on 1 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 27 to 29. Paul said, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. So they're exact opposites, you say. And the base things, which is lowly things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that no flesh should glory in his presence. So this is the opposite of the way we think. We think it's got to be something great. We think that no matter what it is, I want that. I want to be CEO of the company in five years. You know, not everybody's the CEO of the company. If you have a job in the company, no matter what it is, you do it to the best of your ability. You work hard. You do it unto the Lord. Don't complain. You know, and just do the best you can. So why would God choose foolish, weak, lowly, and despised people? That's a good question. We're given the answer, so, so he gets all the glory. That's the answer. Whether it's God's choosing Israel, Gideon, David, the Twelve, or any of us, God chooses the way he does. So it's obvious it's all to him. There's no human explanation. It all belongs with the Lord, why he chooses certain people for certain things. Gideon thought he needed a huge army to conquer people. God said, no, 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 no. Go down by the water, and I'm going to watch you drink and the way and manner that you drink. I'm going to get to the number 300, and that's it. Imagine what Gideon thought. Looks at this massive army out there and looks at 300 people and thought, I have to trust the Lord. I have to walk in faith. Israel, Joshua in the promised land, rolled over the established armies greater than Israel, one by one by one. The only one they lost to in a battle was Ai. And why did they lose to him? Because somebody in the camp hid his, the plunder. And the Lord said, the plunder is mine. And they suffered for that. But going ahead, they took care of that. David, a shepherd boy slayed Goliath with a slingshot. Bingo. Right between the eyes. That guy was huge, and he wasn't a big man. Jesus selected 12 men, very interesting assortment of men, when you think about it. Four fishermen, Peter, James, John, Andrew, unknown what they did. Philip, Nathaniel, Bartholomew, Thomas, James, the younger, and Thaddeus. Tax collector, the hated of all people, even in this world today. It's called IRS. And he was the IRS of that time, was Matthew. There was a zealot. His name was Simon. They were troublemakers. Judas. Think of this. He chose Judas. Scholars suggest he was a member of the zealot sect known as the Sicarii. Sounds Italian, so it kind of goes with the territory. 
So the Sakari in modern Hebrew is defined were a splinter group of the Jewish zealots who in the decades preceding Jerusalem's destruction uh, strongly opposed the Roman occupation of Judea. The Sakari carried uh, small daggers um, to attack Romans and Roman sympathizers alike blending into the crowd after the deed to escape detection. The Sicarii are regarded as one of the earliest known assassination groups, units of cloak and dagger kind of thing, predating the, the Islamic Hashemish and, and Japanese ninja and the derived Spanish one, Sicario, and in contemporary Latin America to describe a hitman or drug cartel. This is Judas, and the Lord selected him to be an apostle. It's encouraging, because if you think and look at him, and then at the end and what he did, then you can feel, feel better about the choice that God took when he chose us. God chooses the right people. Miracle is one of my favorite movies. Do you remember the 1980 U.S. Olympic ice hockey team? I was watching that hockey game and I was freezing because I was looking at the ice. I was living in San Diego. But that morning I was freezing. I had about three sweaters on and watching this game. And this is the one where they won the gold medal after defeating the Soviet Union, one of the greatest upsets in history. The head coach, Herb Brooks, is very familiar with the players through coaching, scouting, and watching film. It wasn't too much not known to him. So he's able to choose his team very quickly. The assistant coach, Craig Patrick, comes to talk to Herb on the first day of tryouts. And Herb says, take a look at this. And Craig says, what's this? And Herb says, 26 names on a piece of paper. The tough part will be getting it down to 20 before the opening ceremonies. And Craig says, this is the final roster. You're kidding me, right? This is our first day, Herb. We've got a week of this. You're missing some of the best players on this list. Some of the greatest American hockey players, uh, amateurs, were not on that list for a reason. And Arab says, I'm not looking, and this is the key, not looking for the best players, Craig. I'm looking for the right ones. Chemistry, bring them together, work together. So Coach Brooks wasn't looking for the fastest, the strongest, or the most experienced. This makes me think of the way God chooses. He isn't looking for the smartest, the best speakers, the most experienced, or the most religiously trained. He's looking for the right person in every job that he asks us to do, every ministry. I want the right one in there. Fill that gap. The difficulty is what we might think are the right people. God might think are the wrong people. And vice versa, we wouldn't choose the people God chooses, and he wouldn't choose the people we choose. So consider these three examples of God's choosing, the nation of Israel. Consider all the nations could have been chosen, anyone. Did he choose Israel because they were going to be so obedient and submissive? They were rebellious day and night. The Old Testament reveals they were largely disobedient and rebellious. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. Deuteronomy 7.7. 7. 
He chose the least of all the peoples of that time. Definitely not the way man would choose. Would be looking for the best. Looking around. Number two is Gideon. When, when God chose Gideon to save Israel, he did so because he was so great and powerful? No. He was another little guy. And upon learning he was chosen, Gideon said in Judges 6, 15, Oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. Didn't have a lot of good soldiers. And I am the least in my father's house. How come you're not picking my brothers that are, that are older? They're probably more qualified. Again, not the way we would choose. We'd want the best of the lot. And then David, uh, in 1 Samuel 16, 11 said, Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? when he was out going to look for the next king of Israel. Then he said, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep, another shepherd. David's own family didn't choose him. They didn't even bring that young man along with the other brothers to see Samuel. He ain't going to make it, you know. They left him out in the field watching the sheep because they thought there was so little chance of him being king. And this is an encouragement to us. Say, Lord, how can I do that? Don't worry about it. He will help you do it. No matter what the call is, he will provide whatever you need. You just got to keep that uh, line of me, communication going. That's how the least and the weakest he was, but God's choice He chose the weakest. I didn't... um, I had an example when I was coaching. I didn't choose like Jesus would choose. I did coaching high school and college baseball and soccer. And um, as much as I dislike losing, hate to lose. Have to put up with it. That's a prideful thing. You know, beat myself on the head. The one thing I disliked even more was tryouts and having, this is, you know, competitive teams. You know, Little League, you keep the kids, high school, college. There's only so many uniforms and so many seats to take on that team. And I hated having to choose some kids and not others, you know. And I didn't choose the weakest kids. But once in a while, I did pick a kid that I thought was, you know, could contribute or whatever. But generally, I wanted a winning team. I think about this when considering Jesus' winning team. They were sent out with the gospel, Matthew 10. They laid the foundation of the church in Ephesians 2.20. They will sit on thrones ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a pretty high calling. Matthew 19.28. It wouldn't be too much to say... Few people have ever been more important than these men. So, of course, the Lord would choose men who are tremendous, amazing, powerful, humble, patient, righteous, never quarrel, instead working together like a well-oiled machine, and are the most religious and spiritual. None of those applied. They didn't fill the bill on any of them. When he chose them. 
That's how they ended up. How did they end it up after he worked with them and taught them? Now let's consider these four things about the way Jesus chose. Jesus chose men who lacked humility. The disciples were proud, self-centered, and self-promoting. It's me. I want to be the best in the kingdom, Lord. When we get to heaven, am I number one? Am I sitting right next to you? I am your right-hand man. In Mark 9, 4, he argued about who would be the greatest. He couldn't have anything further from Jesus' teaching. He didn't pick the greatest. He picked the ones he wanted, the ones he knew that were there. While some people might think they're great, they wouldn't certainly argue about it. Jesus chose men, number two, who lacked faith. Throughout the gospel, Jesus commended people's faith, saying, your faith has made you well. At one point, he even applauded the faith of a Roman uh, centurion. The Lord wasn't supposed to, uh, wasn't opposed to complimenting people's faith. It didn't matter. He complimented them. But as much as Jesus seemed to compliment the faith of others, he seemed to just as frequently rebuke the unbelief of the twelve. When the disciples were caught in a storm on the water, they woke Jesus up, yelling and screaming, we're going to drown. This is it. And he said to them in Matthew eight twenty six, why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? They were with Jesus. They saw him do miracles, but they were shaken in their boots. I probably would be the same way. Even though Jesus repeatedly told the 12 that he raised from the dead, in Matthew sixteen twenty one, he appeared to them and rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. There was many, many people that saw Jesus after he rose. And the apostles that were gathered together, didn't, they didn't believe it. Mark sixteen fourteen, this was the end of their ministry with the Lord after they received all the teaching and witness, all the miracles, and their faith was still weak. Still not done with them. The day of Pentecost is coming. So Jesus chose men who lack commitment. That's number three. And where did they prove that out? Jesus graciously warned the disciples they were going to forsake him. But Peter argued, and so did the others in Matthew twenty six thirty five. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. What did they do when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? They went to sleep. He's over there praying to his father. The mob comes up. They grab him. Where did they go? Peter cut off somebody's ear. But that's as far as it went. And then they ran. They scattered. So, but after Jesus' arrest, in Mark fourteen fifty, they all forsook him and fled. As long as Jesus performed miracles and things looked good, They were committed to him. But as soon as he was arrested, they were afraid for their lives. And again, this is after they were disciple. All this time. Jesus chose men. And this is an encouragement to us, too, because we fall. We go along, we fall sometimes and know that we have a path back to the Lord. You know, we shouldn't let us take take everything we, we own there. We should know, okay, Lord, I made a mistake. I need to talk to you. I'll ask for forgiveness and I'll go to the Lord. So number four, Jesus chose men who lacked religious training. 
Now, they pick, uh, this isn't how Calvary works, but a lot of other churches work where they pe- take the most religiously trained MSs, PhDs, BVDs, and whatever else there is, you know, that go along with teaching. It's not wrong, but this is the way things are looked at. They were not well-known or prominent men. They were fishermen, four of them. They went to fish, they came back from fishing. They smelt like fish. We were around fish long enough. And the only reason we know anything about them is the Lord chose them, that we would have never known about them. There's no record of them having strong natural talents or abilities. There's no record of them being orators or public speakers, but probably the oddest thing about the 12 is none of them were religiously trained. God helped them along the way, but they didn't. They weren't religiously trained. They weren't already ready when God called them. We're so familiar with them, we don't think much about it. But if Jesus owned a fishing business, you'd expect him to pick 12 fishermen, right? Or um, a farm, pick 12 farmers. Or a construction outfit, you'd expect him to pick 12 builders. But even though Jesus was entirely spiritual, his work was, he didn't choose one rabbi, scribe, Pharisee or Sadducee in that area at that time. He didn't pick Paul at that time, Saul. That time was coming later, but not one of them. He picked normal, everyday people, who probably most of them loved except the tax collector. He chose four fishermen, one tax collector, and others that we don't know a lot about. So few were chosen. There was a a multitude. While preaching the parable of the wedding feast, Jesus said, in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, many are called, but few are chosen. That verse doesn't seem to fit. Seems like Jesus should have said, many are called, but few respond. Look at how many calls have gone to people up until this time, and how many have selected Jesus? How many have committed their life to Jesus Christ? Because the parable is primarily about people unwilling to accept the king's invitation or call to salvation. And there's this people that come, they can come to you five times and finally you wake up. Something hits you over the head. Now I know what these other people were talking to me about. The Holy Spirit opened me up or opened anybody up. The many called are those who hear the gospel. It's the second step in God's wonderful plan of redemption in Romans 8.30. First one is whom he predestined. Second, these he also called. And three, whom he called. Those he also justified. And we're in that right now on Monday night. God imparted his justification to us as if we never sinned, just as if we never sinned, and his righteousness at the same time. What a gift. And number four, the many call to those, uh, the call itself takes place. So this is to finish here. Now, the question is, will Jesus choose any one of us? Are you common and ordinary enough to be chosen and used by the Lord? Do you lack humility or faith? Commitment or religious training? So at some point we did. The 12 Jesus chose should be a great encouragement to us. They should convince us the Lord can and wants to use us too, in every way, shape, or manner. So there's some questions for all of us today. 
Is God using you in the ministry? Only you can answer that. You should think about that this week. If yes, are you totally committed? Look at that. If no, what is the way? What is the way I can get committed? It's time to get with the Lord in prayer for all of us and ask him, what is my call to serve? If you don't know what it is, especially, if you do know where it is, reinforce it. Expect a reply in some manner, as he's been waiting on us, as a father desires to speak to his children. He's waiting to hear from all of us. Remember, God loves you unconditionally. He loves us all unconditionally. So give him a call. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. It is so encouraging in the actions that you took throughout your ministry on earth, Lord, and, and, the, and the place you stand before the Father in heaven today for us. We give you the praise, the honor, and the glory today and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.